these. Well, I'm wearing this, these for this reason. Uh, we have a ministry here at Thrive Church every Sunday morning uh, where uh, Jim and Candy Mayhew go over at Arbor Glen uh, Convalescent Home, and they have a small team that's been going with them. By the way, if you want to join them, uh, there's no real requirements to join. You just show up and love on people. Every Sunday, they present a message. They, they lead worship with a CD player, and they get to minister to between 5 and 25 people in that home every week. Um, Arbor Glen has asked us, though, as winter is approaching, to help supply a couple of things that those residents need. You know, a lot of the people in that place have family members that hardly ever come and visit, and a lot of them are just very lonely, and they just lack some of the basic necessities, things like gloves and beanies and socks. I wasn't going to take my shoes off, though, so I am wearing socks. Um, here's what you can do to help out. If you could bring just simple wool uh, gloves and a beanie or a pair of socks, you can drop those off at the hub after service, and we'll make sure that those get over to Arbor Glen. This is kind of cozy. I might keep this on through service. Um, and we'll get to be a blessing to that community. Amen? All right. I'm going to take these off because I can't actually use my iPad with them on. Um, hey, today is our collection Sunday for... Operation Christmas Child. We've been collecting boxes. Yeah, we can clap for that. Come on, let's do that again. Um, I, there's a Christmas tree here, and, and here's what I know. So just before you get all crazy, it's before Thanksgiving, and there's just one Christmas tree. Who, who of us are like the, hey, you don't dare put up Christmas, tr Christmas decorations before Thanksgiving? Yeah. Any hardliners like that? You're like, uh-uh. Right? You refuse to walk through the Christmas decor section at Target or at a Costco. You're like, not yet. Yeah, okay. So, so don't get all crazy on me. This is here for a reason. All right. If you have one of those boxes with you, could you bring it up? Let's just go ahead and bring those up and put them under the tree. I, mean, I know there's some back at the hub there. If, uh, if there's some at the hub, if we can grab those and bring them up. We're going to set those under the tree, and we're going to actually pray over these. If you're not familiar with Operation Christmas Child, we partner along with hundreds, if not thousands, of other churches around the country uh, with Samaritan's Purse, uh, an organization that uh, takes literally hundreds of thousands of these boxes and distributes them all around the world to kids who, who are in impoverished nations, um, and they use it as a tool not just to bless these kids and put a smile on their face, but there's a whole program that goes along with these that opens the door to the gospel being presented. They actually have an entire discipleship program and process that they engage with with these kids, which is pretty amazing. And so what we're doing right here is directly affecting young lives for eternity. This is powerful. A simple gift that can transform a life and possibly even a nation. Trinity, where are you at? Come on up. You're hiding out there. You're like, no, maybe he forgot. No, I didn't forget. Um, I asked Trinity if she would come up and if you would pray over these boxes. And would you just extend your hand in that direction and, uh, and as Trinity prays, and let's just believe that these boxes will end up in the right hands, the, the hands of the right kids. You ready? All right, go for it. Okay, I'm going to pray. <laughs> Dear Lord, I pray for these boxes as they go out and travel, that the kids, when they open these boxes, Lord, I pray that they'll be so happy and thankful that I just pray that, um, that they'll have fun, whatever's in those boxes, Lord, and, I, and bless the people who gave their time just to put toys for them, Lord, I pray that they will travel there safely and that mm -hmm. just the kids will love on them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Trinity. Give it up for Trinity as well. Good job. By the way, if you're sitting there going, oh, no, I totally forgot I have a box at home and I forgot that it was this Sunday, it's okay. Um, what you can actually do is uh, you can bring that box to the church office on Tuesday morning and there'll be someone there to collect that from you. We have to drop these off uh, at a collection site on Tuesday afternoon because then they get processed and then shipped around the world. So we have a couple more days, a little grace period. Or if you're going, wow, I, I wish I could have done that, there still is that opportunity. You don't even have to use one of those boxes. You can get like one of those plastic shoebox 
style boxes and, and fill that. Um, but what a great opportunity to be a blessing. Hey, yesterday was Veterans Day, and we want to honor the veterans in our congregation today. If you served or are currently serving in the, in the armed forces, could you please stand to your feet? Can I just say to you, on, on behalf of all of us, thank you for your service. I was, uh, a friend of mine posted a video to Facebook this morning, and it was pictures of service members coming home from deployment, right? And they, kids, and they surprise their kids, and they come running, and there's tears, and I'm sitting there crying, and it, it was so special. And I was actually, when I was in Israel and traveling there on the plane, I thought, you know, I'm going for 15 days, and I already miss my family, the sacrifice, not just of those who serve, but of their families, to be separated for so long uh, is, is something we should be so thankful for and grateful for. So thank you to both of you. I'm going to pray for the both of you and for those who are currently serving. Father God, thank you for all those, Lord, who've given of their lives and, and in many cases given their lives, Lord, so that we can live in this nation and enjoy the freedoms that we have. God, I pray blessings upon these two right here in our congregation, but even those beyond, Father God, uh, who've served, who've honored our nation and honored us by, by sacrificing their lives and giving of their time, Lord, and, and, and their families, Lord, who've sacrificed so much. We give honor to those to whom honor is due. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, it is good to be home, and, uh, and I've missed you all. For those of you who didn't know, I've been traveling a little bit over the last couple of months, and, uh, and I'm, I'm just glad to be here. I'm glad to be able to, to share the Word of God with you this morning. Uh, I was in Israel, as I mentioned, for about 13 days, and it was a jam-packed week, uh, week and a half. I was there with a group of about 10 pastors and then some other congregants from some churches in Hawaii, um, which was a lot of fun. Traveling with Hawaiian folk is a blast. They like to laugh and eat. And I, those two things, I might be Hawaiian. Um, I didn't realize that. Um, but, but forged some great friendships. But I'm in the process of trying to unpack and process everything that I learned and saw. It was my first time traveling to Israel, which uh, is a special trip for anyone who would go, but, but I do know this as a pastor, uh, you know, I don't know if you, you know, for those of you who have taken your kids to Disneyland, and that first time, especially when they're like seven, eight years old, and like their eyes light up, and they're just overwhelmed, right, the first time they see Mickey, and it's just a, and as a parent, you're standing watching that going, oh yeah, kind of hit that one out of the park. Well, that's, I felt like that eight-year-old at Disneyland being in Israel. Like just everywhere we went, I was just like, this is amazing. I'm standing in the place where this or that happened. And, you know, and, and it was just seemed like two days into the trip, I was ready to come home. I was like, okay, I'm done. I, I don't think I can process anymore emotionally or, or mentally. And, and then you just keep going, and every spot was just so rich and so... Uh, amazing. One of the things I, I was even sharing with a friend that, that I was there with, I was like, I'm going to have to be really careful going home because I could just kind of unload Israel on you because it's just so much in me. And so what I'm going to try and do is allow some of the things that God spoke to me just kind of seep out a little bit at a time um, and, uh, and that we would benefit from those things uh, as a congregation. By the way, um, going to Israel is not cheap. It, 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 the trip that I was a part of, it was about $4,000 per person. But can I share a quick Thrive story with you? I didn't pay a penny. Someone paid for me to go to Israel. I got a call a few months back, and someone said, hey, I know you've had a, a tough year. It's been, I know there's been some things that we've walked through as a family. And he's like, I think you just need a break and a sabbatical. We want to pay $4,000 for you to go to Israel. Isn't that good? Isn't that great? And so um, I thank God for that. I thank God for the opportunity. Some of you have already asked me, so are we going? And the answer is absolutely. The fall of 2019. So that's about two years, just less than two years away. But you're like, that's a long time. But it, you're going to need some time to save up. 
um, because you can do a cheaper Israel trip, but you get a cheaper experience. Uh, we want to do, and plus the, the guide that we had, who's, uh, he's an Israeli man, but he's a Christian, uh, gave his life to the Lord leading tours uh, and just got to a place. He's an archaeologist, a marine ar- archaeologist, and, uh, and in the midst of studying and reading and discovering what he did, he just reached a conclusion. He goes, there can't not be a God that Jesus had to have come. The, the evidence is overwhelming. And so to hear from him as, as someone who is Israeli, had, was a, a practicing Jew, and is now a believer, and to hear his um, outlook is absolutely amazing. But he is fully booked until June of 2019. And uh, one of the things that we don't want to do is go to Israel in the summer. Because that is a miserable. By, by the way, anyone who anyone in the in the room been to Israel? Anyone made it made that trip? Okay, so a handful of you, um, and I, I'm sure you would uh, agree with some of those sentiments. It's yeah, it's just one of those places. It's it's pretty amazing, especially as those who follow the Lord. Well, I want to ask you a question this morning. Have you ever made a promise to someone? Anyone ever made a promise? All right, we've all made a promise at some point. Okay, I'm going to ask you a harder question. Um, have, have any of you ever broken a promise? Yeah, we've all broken promises. Or, or at the very least, we've been on the receiving end of a broken promise or a kept promise, which is pretty amazing. It's great when someone makes a promise and they keeps it, keep it, right? Um, but we've also experienced the loss or the disappointment that comes when a promise is made and then not kept. And one of the things about our walk with the Lord is that we tend to overlay our walk in this life, our experience in this life, and the relationships we have, and and the things that happened to us growing up, and we tend to overlay that over our relationship with God. And we bring expectations to God that start mirroring what we've experienced in our life. So when God says, hey, I promise something, that that there can be this little part in us that just kind of goes, yeah, we'll, we'll see. We'll see, especially if there's been a pattern in your life of promises made and promises broken. Because eventually you're like, just stop talking, right? Stop, don't let those words come out of your mouth because I'm disappointed before you've even finished making the promise. Can, can it, do, is that all right? We've all been there. And so we bring that to our relationship with God and that's not healthy. It's not good. And here's why it's not healthy and it's not good. It's because God doesn't make promises the way that people make promises. See, God never makes a promise he can't keep. Not, not ever. Not a single time in his word and in the history of mankind has God made a promise that he hasn't kept or intends to keep. Because he doesn't make promises the way that we make promises. You see, because we can make promises on a whim or out of emotion or out of an emptiness or out of a hope or a wish or even make a promise in a way that's manipulative and tries to get people to do something we want them to do. And, And God's promises are never like that. See, because he sees the whole picture. He's an eternal God. And so, so when he makes a promise, he sees... The end, one of those is, that, that, that stands out in my mind is in, found in Jeremiah 29, 11, right? We love Jeremiah 29, 11, for the no, I, the, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, right? Plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a, a hope and a future, and we're like, amen. What we don't realize is that that promise was given by Jeremiah to the people of Israel as they were going into exile, he says, listen, this promise is going to take place, but there's going to be 70 years between the promise being made and the promise being kept. And, and one of the neat things is, as you go to the Holy Land, they have archaeological evidence of the return of the Israelites from Babylon, from kept, captivity, like the rebuilding of the wall that Ezra and Nehemiah did. But those promises, sometimes there's a, there's a time frame in there. But God always keeps his promises. See, God is faithful to his own word. If he were not faithful to his own word, he he really wouldn't be God. He'd be a liar. 
And God is not a liar. He cannot contradict himself and he cannot move in a way that is contrary to his own character. And so he has to be faithful to his own word. And so all throughout scripture, there's over 200 instances of the word promise. Now, not every promise had the word promise attached to it. But just, just looking at the places where God said, I've made a promise, it, over, it happens over 200 times in Scripture. That's a lot. Something that God is serious about. There's the promise He makes to Noah. And He says, I'll, I'll never destroy the whole earth again. I'll never wipe out mankind like I did. And He puts the rainbow in the sky. There's the promise He makes to Moses that the children of Israel will be delivered out of captivity into, in Egypt and into the promised land, right? We, we, it's, it's even in the name, the promised land. He makes a promise to Abraham. He says to Abraham that, that your children, that you're going to have a son, and that not only will you have a son, but that your children will be like the stars of the universe, that I will make you into a great nation. He makes a promise to, to Jacob, and in fact, changes his name to Israel, transforms his life. He makes a promise to the nation and the people of Israel, to the Jewish people. Read the book of, books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and there's all kinds of promises, which, by the way, those promises, in many cases, he says, I promise to bless you, but, but here's the caveat, you have to obey me, and you have to walk in the ways that I've outlined for you in the law, and if you obey me, and if you honor me, I promise to bless you, but, but if you choose to disobey me and disregard me and worship other gods, I promise you that you will be removed from my presence, which unfortunately is exactly what happened. The promise of a Savior, the Messiah, prophetically in the Old Testament, and then in the New Testament, we have the fulfillment of that promise, even as we draw close to Christmas the fact that Jesus came into the world, that he was born as the fulfillment of their promise. And by the way, my message this morning is entitled The Promise, but it's kind of a, 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 a prequel, right? I'm going to borrow a page out of George, George Lucas's book. I'm going to tell kind of the end of the story, and then we're going to go, our, our Christmas series this, this year is going to be called The Promise. And so we're going to keep talking about this word promise because I think there's something that God really wants to unlock. But I'm starting kind of with the end and we're going to work back from there. Sound good? Just so you're, you're on track or you hear me say the same words again, you're going, wait, wait didn't we already have this? No, it's, there's a whole process in this. But God promised the Savior. He promised Jesus. He promised that God, uh, that, 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 that Jesus would come in bodily form and that he would rescue and save his people he just did it in a different way than what was expected. Jesus makes a promise to us that he will never leave us or forsake us. Amen? Amen. That's a good promise. He promises us, we even heard it out of Romans chapter 8 this, this morning, as Jamie mentioned, that nothing will separate us from the love of God. And when, when the Bible says nothing, what, what he means there is nothing. There's nothing including yourself, that can separate you from the love of God. He promised us that he would return. And in fact, as a, as a Foursquare church, we're part of the Foursquare denomination, and our Foursquare doctrinal statement is, is summed up in this, that Jesus is our Savior, our Healer, our Baptizer with the Holy Spirit, and our soon-coming King. That's what the, the four squares, if you ever wonder what's four square, that's what four square is. Jesus is our savior, our healer, our baptizer in the Holy Spirit, and he's our soon coming king. He promised that he would come back. And, and here's, here's one of the trippy places in Israel, in Jerusalem, when you're standing on the Mount of Olives, looking into the Kidron Valley over the Garden of Gethsemane, and at the eastern gate on the wall of Jerusalem, and the Bible says that Jesus will come down off of the Mount of Olives, down through the Kidron Valley, up and into the Eastern Gate, the Gate Beautiful, and ascend to the Temple Mount. It's mind-blowing to stand in that place and realize this isn't where it might happen. This is where it will happen. And how, do I, how can I be so confident? Because Jesus made a promise, and he's coming back for his bride. He keeps his promise. There's a whole lot more. 
2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 through 20 says this, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you does not waver between yes and no. For Jesus Christ, the Son of God, does not waver between yes and no. He's, he is the one whom Silas, Timothy, and I, this is Paul writing, preach to you as God's ultimate yes. Isn't that great? Jesus is the ultimate yes. I love that. He always does what he says. For all God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. And through Christ, our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. And there's agreement with the saints. Jesus says yes to us and we say yes to him because God always does what he says he will do. I have quite a few verses in fact because I don't want this to be my opinion. I want this to be the word of God that paints a picture for us as to his, his nature and character when it comes to him keeping his promises. Romans chapter 15 verse 8 and 9. I'm just going to read the first uh, part of verse 9 says this, remember that Christ came as a servant to the Jews to show that God is true to the promises he made to their, to their ancestors. He also came so that the Gentiles might, have uh, might give glory to God for his mercies to them. So God's promise is I came for the Jews, but I also came for the Gentiles. And of course, Paul is the one writing this, and he was the one called to go and preach and reach the Gentiles. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Amen? I want to talk about two specific promises this morning that I want to hone in and focus on because we can talk about a vast range of promises and they're all worth talking about, but there's two that I want to talk about this morning that I believe are significant and pertinent for us. The first is this, that Jesus promised that we who, who believe in him and follow his teaching would do greater things in his name than even he did. That's a pretty good promise. Come on. Hello? Jesus promised you and I that in his name that we would not only do the things that he did, but we would do greater things. That's pretty amazing. And that wasn't a suggestion or a hope. That was a promise of Jesus to us. Let's listen to what he has to say. I tell you the truth. Why? Because people can be liars. So I'm going to tell you the truth. The truth of my kingdom and the truth of my Father. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I've done. And even greater works. Because I'm going to, the, uh, going to be with the Father. You can ask for anything. Say anything. anything. Now say anything like you mean it. Anything. All right. Anything in my name and I will do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. That's a pretty awesome promise. So let's take a look. What did Jesus do? Just in case maybe you've forgotten. What did Jesus do? Well, he listened to everything his Father told him. Which means he had a relationship with the Father, by the way. The kind of relationship where he could hear his voice. Jesus says, you will have that kind of relationship with your heavenly father. He had compassion on the lost. By the way, you notice that so often we, we talk about the things that Jesus did and we start with the miracles. But that wasn't the greatest things that Jesus did. He had compassion on the lost. And he says to us, you can have compassion on the lost to even a greater degree. He was a friend of sinners. I mean, he really kind of turned things upside down. He had a reputation. Jesus had a reputation. I mean, he was a guy who did some awesome things, but he hung out with some shady people. And he surrounded himself with really a bunch of losers, broken people. I mean, if, if there were, you know, a handful of things that really impacted me in Israel, one of those was every person we talked about in scripture, as we looked at their life, we we're like, man, they're a mess. 
They were a mess. They were not qualified. They, didn't, they were not eloquent. They, they didn't, hadn't studied. They were liars. They were cheats. They were people who struggled with lust. They were a mess. They kept going back to old habits and old behavior. If you read the Bible, this is what you discover. They were a mess. Yet Jesus says, I'm going to be friends with people who are unlikely so that I can reach them. And he tells us that we should do and be the same. So what kind of reputation do you have? Okay, I'll just kind of leave that hanging out there. He preached the word of God with authority. Not as the, the, the chief priests and the scribes who just were blah, 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 blah. Right? They got up and they preached and they wanted to make themselves look good. God, Jesus preached the word of God with authority and he made his father look good. Got to sit on the southern steps. You're friends with me on Facebook. My profile picture right now is me sitting on the southern steps in the exact place where Jesus would have sat at the exit to the temple where the rabbis spent their time teaching the people as they came out of the house of the Lord. Got to sit in that place where they said of Jesus, he preached with, as one who had authority. That you can speak the word of God and declare the word of God as one who has authority. Jesus said, you would do those things. Not, it's not my word, it's his word. And then he performed miracles in order to draw people closer to God. He walked on water. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He cast out demons. Right? And that was halfway through the week. He fed 5,000 and 4,000, which, by the way, is actually more like 12,000 and 10,000 because they only counted the men. So, so he has this little bit of food, some fish and some bread, and he feeds five thousand men and their families, 12,000 people. That's amazing. And then he says to us, by the way, you're going to do greater things than I did. Okay, can we just let that settle in for a second? Because this, this is a promise from God to you. Oh, do we believe the promise? Do we take God as, at his word? Or do we sell ourselves short? Do we sell ourselves short in what God not only can do, but what he desires, what he wants to do in our lives? Greater things than these. The Bible says that the spirit that raised God from the, that raised Jesus from the dead lives in in us. Greater things in his name than even he did. And we have a hard time wrapping our brains around that. Because how could we possibly do anything greater than Jesus? How could there be possibly anything greater than raising someone from the dead? But we have to understand the word greater, not in the, uh, the awe factor, the oh, wow but we have tools at our disposal where we can reach the ends of the, the globe through a television screen or a computer screen or through a phone. We can have a greater and wider impact because Jesus was limited in his day by the technology and the things that he had available. Now, he had to come in that time, and there's a lot of things that go into That's a whole other series. But, but he came at the right time, but he, he knew that we would have the ability in, in, in the the things, the creativity, and the technology we have to have a greater reach and a greater influence in the world around us. But the question is, do we? Do we take God at his word? Do we believe his promise? I said that there was a second promise that goes with this because he says greater things, but the, the question then becomes, well, how? How do I do greater things than Jesus did? Well, we have to ask the question, how did Jesus do the things that he did? Would you agree that that's an important question to ask? If, if Jesus says that we would do greater things than he did, we have to ask, well, how did Jesus do the things that he did? So glad you asked. It's the second promise. It's this, the promise of the Father to send the Holy Spirit. That Jesus did not minister apart from the power of the Holy Spirit at work in his life. I think it's interesting 
That's so often in our, especially in our Western, but, but even beyond that, because our Western uh, frame of Christianity really influences the world. We just celebrated the 500, 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and so uh, an, an amazing event that took place in, in Germany as, as evangelical Christianity kind of exploded onto the scene and, and started spreading around the world. But in the midst of that explosion and in the midst of that spread, it's almost like in so many cases, the third person of the Trinity, the person of the Holy Spirit, has been largely ignored, forgotten, or misunderstood. Largely ignored, forgotten, or misunderstood. And so because we're not comfortable or because we don't understand, what we tend to do as a people is we just ignore what we don't get. And I'll just kind of go with the more comfortable parts of my faith, which, by the way, is not what Jesus did. Jesus was not okay being comfortable. He didn't have a house. Jesus was homeless, people, for the sake of the kingdom. And so the third person, the Trinity, who is a person, not an it, the Holy Spirit is not an it, is he, he is a he, has been so disregarded, but he is absolutely, unequivocally the reason why Jesus was able to do what he did. And so we can't expect to do what Jesus did if we do not understand and embrace the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. There's been much debate over the centuries as to the function and relevance of the Holy Spirit in our lives today. And that's not a debate I want to have this morning. I'm really going to come from a standpoint of when I read my Bible, I see that the Holy Spirit is, is present in power, and I'm just going to take God's word for it. All right? There's two words that come to mind, and as I was preparing for this morning, two words that I believe that kind of get, off, get us off track. The two words are this, mystical and escalate. There's this part where it's, there's this mystical part of the Holy Spirit, and in a more modern and Western context, we, we're we've more far removed from mystical and spiritual things. If you go to more Eastern uh, nations, you're, there, there's a closer relationship with with the, the spirit realm and the understanding that there's something outside of what we see in the physical. But in our Western context, we have a hard time wrapping our minds around that. And so it becomes this mystical kind of weird, like, ooh, kind of thing. And we overlay that again over the, our, our, our cultural experience, over the Holy Spirit. And we make Holy Spirit to be kind of this, ooh, he's not Casper the friendly ghost. He's the third person of the Trinity, the Godhead. He is God. And so because I don't understand, I won't or I can't engage. The other is the escalation, which happens to the abuses of Scripture, the interpretation of Scripture and the understanding of the Holy Spirit in our lives, which results in people having experiences that are not honoring to God in context where he's misused in people's lives. And I'm going to share a little bit of my own journey in a minute. Um, but this happens. In fact, you might have come from a Pentecostal background where maybe there's some bruises and lumps and things, some scars. There were in my life. I, I grew up in a Pentecostal church, which even that term, right, Pentecostal, people are like, oh, you're one of those. <laughs> You know that all of, all of the New Testament church were Pentecostal? All of them. In fact, when they showed up in a place and there were a group of believers who had not received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and hadn't experienced that infilling, they were like, whoa, whoa, whoa something's missing. We got we to gotta fix this. And so, but in our, again, in our culture, in our experience, there's this, the word Pentecostal, kind of the hairs go up in the back of people's head and they're like, okay, I'm going to just back away slowly. Because of a misunderstanding. And Pentecost is just simply that it was on the day of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit... I'm getting ahead of myself. All right, I'm going to get there. I remember this. Grew up in a context and in a church where the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit was welcome and engaged in, 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 in what I experienced in a healthy way. Our pastor was a pastor of a... a a non 
Pentecostal church, you know, part of a denomination, which I'll just leave unnamed, but there's a whole bunch. You pick one. Um, in church of about eight, 900 people in, in Pretoria, South Africa, I was about five years old when this all happened. And some of my earliest memories, Pastor Ed Raybert started doing a series on the Holy Spirit. Because we believe in the Holy Spirit. Even if you're not Pentecostal, you believe in the Holy Spirit because he's in the Bible, and so you have to. And so he started doing a series on the Holy Spirit, and in the midst of this series, Pastor Ed was filled with the Holy Spirit. And there, and there were evidences of that infilling, and I'll talk about some of those in a minute. What didn't stop with Pastor Ed? Revival breaks out in this little church in Hatfield, Pretoria, South Africa, and all of a sudden, we're at church every morning and every night. And I remember as a kid, we were like, okay, dad got home from work. We got in the car and we went to church. And we were there for hours because all of a sudden there was this fire. Well, the denomination that our church was a part of came heard about this and came to Pastor Ed and said, uh-uh, <laughs> no, this doesn't align doctrinally. And he's like, well, I can't go back. And so he, he said, I, I have to leave. Well, the rest of the church is like, well, we're going with you. And that church grew from about 800 people over the next decade to over 9,000 people. And we saw an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in that place that was absolutely amazing. But at the same time, Megan and I in our involvement in the camping program here in, in Southern California with Foursquare, we would go to camp, and camp is one of the primary places where we see our kids filled with a, the, and baptized in the Holy Spirit. But I started seeing so many, so much weirdness. Can I just say yeah. weirdness? Yeah. And so much abuse of, of, of young leaders who didn't know what they were doing and started doing just weird things to kids, trying to push them on the head or push them on the ground or give, right. trying to manufacture an experience that wasn't genuine. And my heart started breaking, and it actually created a bit of a, a callousness in my own heart where I started backing away, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to put some distance and kind of a, adopted a conservative stance in my approach. Not that I didn't believe that the Holy Spirit was present and powerful in my life, but kind of, you know, when you just get, you get some hurt, you kind of go the other direction. And that's not okay either. And so the Lord had to do a, a, a restoring work in my life. I want to come back to this point. The one thing that we cannot ignore is that Jesus was filled with, it, with and empowered by the Holy Spirit in order to do what he did. Remember, he was baptized by John the Baptist, John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And I want to show you a picture. This is the Jordan River. And, uh, and this is the spot that's agreed on was the place where Jesus was baptized. And the reason for it is the Jordan River flows with quite a, it, it's, it, it's a voluminous river. There's a lot of water flowing in that river. And from the Sea of Galilee down to the Red Sea, it's pretty much a straight shot. If you look at a map, it just kind of just goes straight down. And so the water coming out of the, the, the Sea of Galilee is exiting because the, the springs that feed the Sea of Galilee kept it really full. And so there was just a, a, a velocity to the water that prevented people from crossing in really at any point except for one. At this point of the river, the, the river makes kind of an S-bend. It's the only bend in the entire river, and it's the only place where the water slows down because it has to, as you know, those fluid dynamics are, it, it has to slow as it gets to that corner and it slows down. And so this is the spot where they believe that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River right here. And it says that as John the Baptist baptizes Jesus and he comes out of the water, what happens? The Holy Spirit de descends on him in the form of a dove. And then there's a voice of the Father, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And it's after this event that Jesus begins his formal ministry. Why? Because Jesus needed to be empowered by the Holy Spirit in order to do the things that he needed to do. It couldn't happen before that. Now, let me ask you kind of a, a rhetorical question. Did Jesus need to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Did Jesus need to be baptized? No, he was perfect. He was God. So why? 
because he leaves a model for us to follow because he wants us to understand. He wants to remove as much of the opportunity for misinterpretation as possible, but we still struggle, right? But it was at this point that Jesus begins this ministry and he starts doing the things that, that we read about in, in, in Scripture where we go, whoa, this is amazing. Jesus turned water into wine. He, he cast out demons. He walked on water. He preached as a th- with authority that crowds followed him. And all he talked to the wind and the waves, and the, right? All of these things that were happening in Jesus' life come back to this moment. We can't ignore the fact that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit and it was after that. So so. We say, well, greater things. How? Well, we need what he had. We have to have what Jesus had to do what he did. Does that make sense? We have to have what Jesus had in order to do the things that he, he did and greater. So let's demystify and de-escalate. Sound fair? By simply looking at the word of God. Because I think we get into arguments, and I've read arguments, and I've listened to arguments, and I've been a part of arguments and debates, and sometimes we forget that there's a Bible that we can reference, and we don't have to lean on my own understanding, amen? John 14, 15 through 17, Jesus says this, if you love me, obey my commandments, pretty straightforward, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, one of the names for the Holy Spirit. He will never leave you. Promise, by, by the way, never means never. <laughs> he is the Holy Spirit who leads us, leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you and now and later will be in you. This is key for us. This is the distinction where a lot of the divide happens. Well, when you give your life to Jesus, you're filled with the Spirit. You're saved, and yes, the Holy Spirit is a part of that work. But Jesus made a clear distinction that that you know the Holy Spirit because He's with you, but at some point, He will also be in you. Really key. Not my words, Jesus' words, okay? Luke 24, 45 through 49. Then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and He said, yes. It was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. You are witnesses of these things. And now I will send the Holy Spirit just as my father promised. But stay here in the city until the Holy Scripture comes. A Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. This is Jesus right before he leaves to go back to heaven. And he says, by the way, I have to go. Because if I don't go, he can't come. Because I'm going to go stand and, 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 and make intercession for you before my Father. But the Holy Spirit will come. And he will never leave you. And he will fill you. And he will empower you to do the things that I've called you to do. But stay in the city. And why, why was this important? Well, because after the crucifixion and even after the resurrection, the, the, the disciples were in a bit of a quandary. Because Jesus was really clear about, hey, listen, this is what's going to happen. And they had a hard time believing that he would die. I, I would have a hard time believing that. They had grown close to him. They had a relationship with him. They had walked with him all over Israel, sat around fires talking. And so they would grown close to him. And so... In fact, in John 21, we find Jesus on the the northern shore of the Lake of Galilee calling out to the disciples saying, hey, you guys, you're out there fishing. (laughs) How's it going? Why were they there? Because they went back to what was familiar to them. They'd been walking with Jesus for three years, but man, when things kind of, when the wheels fell off, Peter denies Jesus. They're scattered. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane. The soldiers come. They're gone. Right Now, Jesus, Peter denied him with his mouth, but really, all of the disciples denied him with their feet. We're gone. We're out of here. And now they're feeling bad. They're feeling guilty. They're all depressed. Can I get an amen? Because right? none of us have ever felt that way. And so what do they do? They go back to what they know. And so Jesus has to tell them, listen, I'm going to leave, but don't go anywhere. Because I know your propensity to just scatter. 
Please stay. Because there's something coming. Better yet, there's someone coming. And you need to be here. You need to be here when he shows up. So stay in Jerusalem until he comes. Acts chapter 1. Verse 1, 4 through 5, once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Father's promise spoken by Jesus is that we would receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' baptism. See, John's baptism was the baptism of water. Jesus' baptism is a baptism in the Holy Spirit and in fire. So Acts chapter 2. I want to pick, put up a picture before I read this. It's another picture from, from Israel. In fact, would you, we'll just leave that up. Don't, don't put the verse up. I just want you guys to listen. This is the traditional site of the upper room in Jerusalem. Now, traditional means we actually don't know exactly where it was, but we've kind of an educated guess. Of course, Jerusalem between AD 70 and today has been destroyed and rebuilt multiple times. And so a lot of those original structures are actually buried underground. But, but this is a spot that is revered as the upper room. Um, and it's been a contested site. It's been a church. It's been a mosque. It's kind of gone back and forth. But, but all I know is this. At some point in Jerusalem, in an upper room, the disciples gathered and they were together, and this is an upper room in Jerusalem, and we stood there and we prayed. And I, I was just over, overwhelmed by the fact that it was in this room or a room like it that everything changed. Everything changed. The way that, that religion is done changed forever because it went from the hands of the specialists, the priests, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, and God empowered ordinary men and women. So listen to what happens. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. And suddenly there was a sound from heaven like a roaring of a mighty windstorm. And it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like, tongues of, uh, flame, looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. God showed up. God the Holy Spirit showed up. And He moved in their midst in a way that has changed the world forever. Ordinary, broken people like you and me. And God says, I will fill you with my spirit. And as I do, you will do greater things in my name than even I have done. Praise God. Praise God. But here's the thing, it didn't stop there. It didn't stop in that room. See, whole. Holy Spirit is not limited by time and space and distance. So he didn't stay in Jerusalem. And there started to be a spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ as, as people were empowered by the Holy Spirit to go out and speak in boldness. In fact, Peter, who's up to this point, really what he did best was put his foot in his mouth. Peter, who, who had uttered those words, I don't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. I've never met the man. The same man who just days before, just a few weeks before, he gets up. Is Now there's this commotion because, by the way, people re realized something was happening. It wasn't this quiet, peaceful, okay, we're just going to have our holy huddle moment. That the people in Jerusalem were like, what is going on? And so this crowd shows up because Jerusalem was packed. For the feast of Pentecost. And they're like, whoa, these people are out of their minds. They must be Pentecostal. No, they didn't say that. What's going on? You must be drunk. Okay, we've all seen drunk people, right? And you're not like, oh yeah, you're in your right mind. This is what they likened them to. And Peter gets up and goes, whoa, 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 whoa. 
And he begins speaking under the power of the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, with a boldness and an authority that he'd never had before. And 3,000 people, 3,000 people say, we want to follow this Jesus that you're talking about. And they commit their lives and, man, the church took off. I tell you what, there's not a church growth book that's been written that can compare to this. No strategy. They didn't sit and go, listen, how are we going to attract more people? Maybe we can send out a flyer and canvas the neighborhood. All right? I'm not trying to bash the church, but come on, people. Sometimes we lead with that. What were the people attracted to? The power of God present in normal people's lives. In the midst of this, in the midst of their togetherness, in the midst of the unity in that place as they were together breaking bread and praying and being with each other, they had to replace Judas. And so they cast lots and Matthias is chosen to, to be the replacement disciple, right? This is so they're doing some business and they're hanging out and, and the Holy Spirit shows up. And Peter, in the midst of his message, quotes the prophet Joel who made a promise, from the, from the mouth of God to them and to us. He says this in Joel 2, 28 and 29. Then after doing all those things, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Say all people. That's you. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on servants, men and women alike. And he removes all the barriers and all the things that separate. And he says, young, old, male, female, servant, free, doesn't matter. I will pour out my spirit on all people. And Peter stands up and he says, this is the fulfillment of a promise that happened. And by the way, those in Jerusalem would have known the prophet Joel. They would have known this passage. It's happening. There was a promise made by a God who keeps his promise, and this is the fulfillment of that promise, and you can be a part of it. That's pretty amazing. And the invitation still stands. So I was saved when I was five years old. I gave my life to Jesus at a family camp. It's one of my earliest memories. I was filled and baptized with the Holy Spirit when I was seven. Our church, because we had moved out of the church that we were occupying when Holy Spirit showed up, and that denomination said, uh-uh, we moved out of that church and we actually were meeting in a tent. It was a a large circus-style tent. Some of you have heard the, the name Reinhard Bonnke. Um, it was one of his old tents that he used with Christ for Africa or Christ for the Nations. And so our pastor and him were really close, and he said, hey, I've got a tent that you can use. We set it up. Uh, my dad helped lay the foundation. We poured a concrete foundation and then built this tent. My dad brought in his big equipment. He had caterpillars and stuff. And so I got to help erect this tent. It was awesome. Some of my favorite days as a kid. And we started holding church in this tent while we built a new church building. And one Sunday, Pastor Ed, I remember I was just sitting in a little blue chair in this tent, white and green stripes, and Pastor Ed was talking about the Holy Spirit because he couldn't not after his experience. And he just simply said to the congregation, hey, if, if you want to be filled, if you want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit today, I just invite you to come forward. And at seven years old, I was like, oh, that's me. And I walked up to the front. And I tell you, there was no hype, there was no emotion, right? Yeah. Hey, if this is what you want, this is who Jesus is, this is what he did, this is what he promised, here's how the Holy Spirit showed up, and here's how he made a difference. If you want that, come up front. And I went to the front. Seven years old, got prayed for, and I was ushered out into a little side tent, there was a little ministry room, and, um, and we just got to pray, there was a prayer, prayer team there, and I remember I sat down, I, I remember I was facing uh, away from the big, t I mean, I remember exactly where I was in that spot, and a, a lady on the prayer team came up to me, she didn't really, she didn't touch me, she didn't lay hand on my head, she didn't, right, some of those things that we associate with Pentecostalism, she wasn't crying, and she just said, hey, what's your name? I'm Barry, do you want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? Yes, okay. Just pray and ask God to fill you with the Holy Spirit. Okay. And I prayed. And she says, okay. And she walked away. And so I'm just sitting there. 
seven years old. And I started speaking in tongues. And no one coached me. And no one said, now just start making noises or uttering or going blah, 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 and I'll turn. Nothing happened like that. I just started speaking in tongues. Can I just tell you, it was wonderfully normal and divinely powerful at the same time because as a seven-year-old, I was like, what's going on? But it's kind of cool. This is amazing. And I've not looked back. There's been some bumps in the road. But I've known since seven years old that I needed the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. And you do too. And I don't know where you're at in your journey with God, what this has looked like in your experience. But here's the thing. Thrive Church is a four-square church. We're a Pentecostal church. We believe in the power and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we want to take a doctrinal stand and show people. No, because I want God to do greater things in us than he did even in Jesus Christ. I want that in me and I want that for you. And I know this, it's not going to happen apart from the baptism of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's just not. And can I tell you, this is a point of freedom for me. Because as a four-square pastor, as a Pentecostal pastor, I've hesitated to preach the baptism of the Holy Spirit, just in case. But here's what I know. I want the fullness of God for you. When you read your Bible, my prayer is that as you read, you go, God, I want that in my life. And some of you maybe have heard of a, a preacher named John Bevere, powerful man of God, got saved in college, went to a went to a, a college Bible study, had been parting like crazy, and Jesus met him, gave his life to the Lord, started going to this Bible study, and he just started like, God, reading the Bible. And so one Bible study, he says, in the midst of the Bible study, they're like, hey, how can we pray? And he goes, hey, I want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Like the Bible says, and they're like, oh, we'll need to talk to you later. <laughs> and he was like, What? Because God's word is God's word, and he says he will do what he says he will do, and he says, listen, you'll do greater things in my name when you're empowered with power from on high. When the person of the Holy Spirit comes into your life and is welcomed into your life, it's a game changer. A couple of things. Jesus says, wait, I translate that for us now, slow down. Because this is the how part, by the way. You're like, well, how do I do it? Here we go. Slow down. Because an engagement with Holy Spirit is not a drive-through kind of engagement, right? I'll take my, my grande latte and the Holy Spirit. There has to be a waiting, a drawing near. The Bible says, draw near to me. God says to us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So we got to slow down. We got to wait. We're going to slow our roll a little bit and say, okay, God, I want to draw near to you. I want to I be in a quiet place. It doesn't have to be an upper room. It can be any room. I got baptized in the spirit in a tent. Doesn't matter. It's not the place. But there has to be an intentionality, an engagement even what Gerson talked about last week, where we would say, Lord, I'm aware of who you are and your presence in my life, and I just want to turn my focus to you. And so we have to wait on him. We have to ask. Now, the disciples didn't ask, but, but it kind of happened before the upper room. And Jesus, I mean, they had Jesus right there, and he's like, hey, I'm going to just do what I'm telling you to do, right? For us, it's a little different. And I think there's something about asking, in fact, Jesus himself in another place says this, Luke 11, 11 through 13, your fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? Or if they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? Of course not. That's ridiculous. I added that. Um, so if you sinful people know how to give good, good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? 
And so Jesus says, you need to ask, but when you ask, he's going to give you Holy Spirit. He's just, he's just, because he's a good father and he keeps his promises. So we need to ask, how? Father, (laughs) fill me with the Holy Spirit. That's it. No weird, funky business. Don't have to hop on one leg or nothing. Just ask. By the way, this has nothing to do with how good of a person you are. You know why? Because in Jesus, you're completely sanctified. Right? So this is like, uh, oh, I have to earn this. It's salvation and baptism in the Holy Spirit is not something you earn. Jesus says, hey, I've redeemed you. I died on the cross. I, I went to the cross. I rose again. I conquered sin. I conquered the grave. We sang about that this morning. So your, your qualification is not even an issue. It's not a part of the conversation. If you call on the name of Jesus, you're saved, and you're entitled to ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? All right, good. Receive. Just receive. I'm asking, and now I'm receiving. Don't doubt. Don't fear. Don't question. Be like a seven-year-old kid in a tent. Hey, I want that. Okay, cool. Pray. Good. Boop. Hey, speaking in tongues. Right? Demystify, de-escalate. Holy Spirit is normal. And then expect. What should you expect? Expect your life to be different. Expect your life to be different. The disciples' lives were different. Jesus' life was different. Everyone who got filled with the Holy Spirit, their lives were not the same anymore. What can you expect? You expect boldness. Expect a boldness. Peter got up and he preached with a boldness he didn't have 10 minutes ago. But now all of a sudden... He's got this boldness. Expect that a passion and a compassion and a desire to reach the lost would just overwhelm you and spring up inside of you like you've never had before. Some people would would be a physical sensation like, man, I'm just kind of feeling kind of warm. Not uncommon. The Holy Spirit would say, I want to embrace you with my love and, and maybe it's just a warm, fuzzy feeling. He knows what you need, and so he's going to meet you in the midst of that. The gifts of the spirits will become evident in your life, and that's a whole other conversation, but, but the Holy Spirit empowers us with gifts to be able to make God's name famous. Now, don't be surprised that you start experiencing, wow, there's, I have a passion or I have a desire. There's things that I, all of a sudden I'm good at. And expect that God will start moving in your life. And finally, you can expect to speak in another language. Now, this is the one. This is the one that gets probably abused more than anything else. And it's probably the one place where people go, yeah, no. (laughs) But here's what I know in my life. My prayer language is for me. I pray in tongues because I want to have that kind of relationship with God in prayer that that he talks about in scripture. It's for me. I pray and I'll pray and I'll go back and forth between English and, and speaking in tongues and speaking in tongues, but it's not, can I just clear some things up? It's not like being possessed. That is probably the biggest question I get. Like, so, like, what happened? Is it like, it's not poltergeist or something like that, right? Right. (laughs) I'm full control. It says that the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. I'm in full control. I can speak in tongues at any moment, at any time, and I can stop at any moment, at any time, Right. right? And here's what I know, that when I'm praying in tongues that my spirit testifies with the spirit of God because I'm praying things that I don't understand. When I was in that upper room, there were Muslims standing on that wall right there praying because this used to be a mosque and they didn't remove the edifice. It's there. And so it was a, it was a crazy experience. You've got Christians on one side. In fact, there's a, an olive tree, a, a bronze olive tree with trees branches grafted into it symbolizing the body of Christ on one side of the room and Muslims on the other side praying and there's a Jewish school group that are there, and they're just kind of taking it all in. And it was like this 
crash of culture and religion. And I was like, Lord, I don't know how to pray. Well, I'm in the upper room. I think I'll pray in tongues. And I'll pray in the Spirit. It's a good place to do it. Why? Because I was like, Lord, I don't even understand the spiritual dynamic of what's happening in this place right now. So I'm going to pray in a way that, that I don't understand, but you do. For a long time, it was in Foursquare and even outside, it was like that, that speaking in tongues was the initial evidence of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And it was a pretty dogmatic stance, which I, I, I believe resulted in some damage. Um, it resulted in youth pastors like bashing their kids for like, no, just start talking, just start forming words. And like kids are like trying to make stuff up just to get, leave me alone, right? That's not what God's heart is. So can you be filled with the Holy Spirit and not speak in tongues? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because it's what father when you ask for bread, right? Because there's nothing that lines up in Scripture that God would say, nope, you don't do this. I would say for all of us, we need to desire it. We need to pursue it. And in the right time, God will do what he needs to do because he knows where you need healing because he cares about you before he's going to impose something on you. That's a, it's a huge part of my prayer life. But it's not the only part of my prayer life. And so all of these things can take place. Well, really, what's at the, at the core of the issue is this. Do we desire? Because this isn't a one-time deal. There needs to be a, a point of initiation. There's that first time that I'm praying daily, Lord, fill me with your spirit. Holy Spirit, fill, I, I, I need you in my life, which means I need to slow down long enough and say, Holy Spirit, I need you in my life. Can we stand together? I'm going to close this way and invite the worship team to come. I'm going to simply ask and give you an opportunity, the same opportunity that was afforded me 